So um, I'm really honored uh, that you all came to this. You know, I was joking with my wife earlier, my wife Jana, who's sitting in the uh, front row up here, and uh, my friend RJ, uh, who I went to seminary with, that uh, you know, it would serve me right. And I kind of corralled them to make sure they'd come uh, to this talk today because uh, this is actually the session of the breakouts that I always skip, like every year. Uh, it's kind of late in the afternoon, and you're in that food coma zone, and there's like the rest of the afternoon to go explore the city. So I'm just, I'm privileged that anybody uh, showed up at all. So thank you for coming. Uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about the relationship between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and just uh, what that can teach us about. Uh, law and the gospel and also about race relations in America. And in many ways, though, this may seem a bit strange, I'm really indebted for this talk for today uh, to this book um, called Martin and Malcolm in America by a man named James Cone. Does anybody know James Cone? In many ways, uh, unnatural uh, friend uh, to the Mockingbird Conference. Um, but I think, I mean, first of all, this is the best book out there. And he's sort of the leading figure trying to sort of bring together in conversation Martin King and uh, Malcolm X. And um, he does, it's a really great book. I recommend it to anybody who wants to read it. And uh, you know, where I want to go with it is a little bit different than James Cone does, but we can actually do some of that work here together to make sense of what Cone does and how we should think about it in relation to the gospel. Uh, but before we begin, I want to make a few disclaimers, because as I've already sort of uh, suggested or implied by what I've said so far, it's really difficult uh, to talk about Martin King and Malcolm X without stepping in it in a variety of different ways. Um, and in part, that's because their legacies are so um, marred and uh, conscripted in uh, the use of de other agendas, right? In fact, um, so yeah, two disclaimers to begin. Uh, first off, I want to say clearly this, that this is an attempt to uh, whitewash MLK. Do you all know what I mean by that? Uh, there's actually a great uh, example that I can use, and I want to show the video clip of that real quick. This is from uh, the Super Bowl this year, an ad by Dodge. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. By giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know the theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace. Soul generated by love. Anybody see that commercial this year at the Super Bowl? Yeah, it was the worst commercial of all time. Um, in part because if you know anything about the uh, clip, the audio clip that they played during the commercial, it comes from Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon, Drum Major Instinct, one of the last sermons he gave in the last year of his life. Uh, and it means the exact opposite of what they try to do in that commercial with it. In fact, the drum major instinct, well, let me just actually show the same uh, clip, the same video clip with a different audio clip from the very same sermon uh, alongside of it. So let me just show that real quick. Uh, the presence of this instinct explains why we are so often taken by advertising. You know, uh, those gentlemen of massive verbal persuasion, they have a way of saying things to you that kind of gets you in the bind. In order to be a man of distinction, you must drink this whiskey. In order to make your neighbors envious, you must drive this type of car. In order to be lovely to love, you must wear this kind of uh, lipstick or this kind of perfume. And you know, before you know it, you're just buying that stuff. I've got to drive this car because it's something about this car that makes my car a little better than my neighbor's car. And I am sad to say that the nation in which we live is the supreme culprit. And I'm going to continue to say it to America. Right? <laughs> and I mean, the, the title of the sermon itself, The Drum Major Instinct, 
just refers to that. It's the kind of drumbeat of consumer culture that make that kind of puts us in that frame of mind where we're just like, I gotta get the next thing. I gotta buy the next thing, right? That was the whole purpose of the sermon. And yet somehow, um, that was used in order to try to get people during the Super Bowl to buy Dodge Ram trucks, right? Which is just ironic, but in many ways it's also symbolic. It's endemic of the ways in which Martin King is used uh, today, right? And so it's not an attempt to whitewash MLK, and it's and even though in many ways MLK is going to be the hero of this talk, it's not an attempt to make uh, Martin King into a hero. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is it's not an attempt to do something like this, right? Um, as any, does anybody know um, how many uh, people, Americans in uh, history, have monuments in the downtown mall in D.C. that aren't presidents or war heroes? Anybody, can anybody make a guess? Right, there's just one, right? It's Martin King. And I, this is a beautiful memorial in many ways. My wife and I have gone there a few times, and uh, you know, we've had powerful sort of emotional moments of remembering his life and ministry. But in some ways, too, whenever I go to this, I can't help but think of uh, the book of Daniel, right, and the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? It's this tendency we have um, to try to make idols out of our heroes, right? It's also what we do when we do this, right? We make this sign or this sign or this sign, or this sign, or this sign, right? Uh, in fact, um, when Gallup at the end of the 20th century took a poll of the most admired people of the 20th century, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. finished second to Mother Teresa, right? And on those surveys they took, only Mother Teresa and MLK received uh, votes on more than 10% of the surveys, right? And so there's a sense in which we've made them a kind of hero, but the problem is when we make heroes and we turn them into idols, is that we always, I had a pastor who once told me this, uh, we always end up hating our idols. In part because we expect too much from them, and in part because we expect too little, right? We end up hating them uh, when they're not perfect, right? That's the way in which we expect too much from them. And Martin King was not perfect. Right? He was a deeply flawed man in many ways, and at the same time, we expect too little of them. Right? We want them to be sort of stationary, statuesque, and sit on our desk and never tell us to do anything. Right? Just sort of sit there and confirm the lives that we already live. And when there's anything about them that suggests that we might be doing something other than we are, uh, that's when we really turn on them and turn to hate them. And so I'm wary of giving a talk that in many ways presents Martin King as a hero, even though he is of this talk, um, that suggests that. So those are my kind of disclaimers up front. In fact, what I'm really more interested in than these numbers is this number. Any guesses on what that number is? This is actually um, President Trump's uh, disapproval rating uh, as of about a month ago. I, can't I haven't checked in the last three weeks, but it's a high 57.5%, right? Now, in light of that, any guesses what this number is? Everybody's shy to like get it wrong, you know. No, no. I'm see. We're not. That's not the direction I'm going at this, though. Maybe we could, but um, <laughs> say again, Dan. Sorry. No. Almost. We're close. We're getting to that. This is actually the congressional disapproval rating, right? Which is even higher than the president's. Now, what about this number? You guys were getting to it just a second ago. This was MLK's disapproval rating at the time of his death, right? And I'll do one better than that, because that's, I mean, shocking to a lot of people, but um, maybe not so much when they consider some of the racial dynamics that were taking place at the time. What do you think this number was? That was MLK's disapproval rating in the black community. At the time of his death, this is really why I said before in the intro, everybody hated Martin King. Everybody had turned on him. So what's all that about? Now before we get there though, I wanna kinda of actually work our way back in history by starting with the present and begin by introducing you to this man. Anybody know who this was or who this is? He was actually a speaker at our Mockingbird DC conference in October. He's a man named Daryl Davis. Does anyone know who Daryl Davis was? Yeah, he's 
So Daryl Davis is a blues musician, famous for having played with the likes of Chuck Berry and um, Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, but he has become, uh, in his own words, an accidental uh, civil rights activist. And what he means by that is he didn't intend to become an activist, but it just sort of happened one day when he was at a bar playing uh, some country, country music actually. He had kind of taken a break from the blues and started playing some country. And he met a member of the KKK at the bar. And obviously as a black man, that's problematic, right? And so he meets that, this man, decides to start, uh, he strikes up a conversation with him that ends up turning into friendship. And ends up turning into another friendship. And he keeps meeting more and more members of the KKK until over the course of his life now, the last 25 years, developing these friendships, he has since then uh, converted over 200 members of the KKK out of their life in the Klan just by doing what Jesus did, right? Loving his enemies, developing friendships with those who were his enemies, and watching the way that love was actually generative, right? And changed lives. But if you watch that um, documentary, Accidental Courtesy, there's a really poignant scene that kind of gets to some of the stuff I want to talk about today. So I want to play that real quick. And it's a lengthy clip, um, but hang on just one second, because it's not in my PowerPoint. But um, This is uh, about an eight minute, I'm going to play about eight minutes of this from the um, Netflix documentary, Accidental Courtesy, about uh, Daryl Davis's life. Daryl Davis. Sorry, Tori. Nice my pleasure. Kwame Rose. My pleasure, Daryl Davis. I'm a 21-year-old college dropout. Most people know me from April during the Baltimore uprising. I'm the guy that confronted Geraldo Rivera. Because you're not here reporting about the, the boarded-up homes and the homeless people under MLK. You're not reporting about the poverty levels up and down North Avenue. You're here for the black riot. Since the death of Trayvon Martin, there's been uh, a trending hashtag on social media, Black Lives Matter. And that's kind of put in the spotlight the fact that police have been killing unarmed black people. April 12th, Freddie Gray was racially profiled by three white officers. He got chased down, he got beat up. By the time he got to the Western Police District, his spine was 90% severed. He died April 19th. Working class people, poor black people, rich black people, and all of our allies took to the streets for almost a month and let it be known that, you know, this was not going to be a trend here in Baltimore. Look at your neighbor and tell him I got your back. What do you feel Martin Luther King fits in? For me, personally, Martin was that charismatic leader who came from royalty who got put into a great position. People never talk about the last three years of Martin Luther King's life when he became radicalized. Dr. King told Harry Belafonte in 1968, I fear I integrated my people into a burning house. We got to talk about how we got to end white supremacy, how we got to build independent black institutions, and how we all relate to that. This country is built off economics, so if we're not talking about getting our wealth back or, or building our wealth, then we really ain't talking about anything. We can go off the rhetoric, all the history, okay, it doesn't so work for me. In kind of a roundabout way, you're more into segregation than integration. No, but do we need to separate our dollars and fund our own stuff and fund our own institutions and fund our own businesses? Absolutely, because so far, our dollar's just going up like a mushroom cloud. In a sense, you both sound a little bit like Donald Trump. <laughs> hey, I don't have a problem with Donald Trump. I wish he was president. Tell me why. Because it's the wolf and the fox. I know what Donald Trump's heart is. I know what his aspirations are. Donald Trump going to let you know straight up, I don't like you. Here's why I don't like you. Here's what I'm going to do about you. And cool, then you can combat it from there. But Hillary Clinton, that's leading that. Why would you smoke for David Duke? I ain't voting for nobody. I got the privilege to vote that I'm never going to use. We're still in the same predicaments that we were in, fighting the same war we were fighting that Martin Luther King fought in the fact that and when well, he got us the right got a privilege, it's a right. It seems like a privilege if it's, if it's a whole bunch of people like the whole swath of felons that can't vote at all, never be able to vote again. I mean, I know you a little bit about Daryl. What's your perspective on his work? I would just want to know what the end goal is. It's a, for the layman on the patrol projects, who is it? receiving all the, the ills of white supremacy and, and that hate, right, and on a day-to-day -day level, how do they even begin to even think about that conversation that you're engaging in? My end goal is to bring people together, okay? Bring, bring white supremacists together with, with their nemesis. Unless we learn how to get along with one another. This country is a... Well, why I got to get along with them? Pardon me? Why I got to get along with them? Because they are our fellow Americans. We all have to live in this country together. Shit. Okay, we, we did. Otherwise, we're going to end up self-destructing. So what is this museum? What was it for? Was it? People like you. 
Oh, no, I'm good. Oh, yeah. No, no, you're not good. You ever heard of something called intergenerational trauma? Intergenerational trauma? Yeah, trauma. It's trauma passed on from generations through images, symbols, different things like that. So I have a daughter. She's one years old. However, whenever the museum gets built, let's say she's 15, there's no way in hell I'm bringing her there so she can relive that and see all of that. No, not at all. What's the point? Because in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you came from. White folks need to go see that. How many roads have you collected? Roughly, I'd say maybe 25, 26. How long you was doing that for? Uh, since about 1990. And you only got 26 roads. You only got 25 roads? You asked me about roads. You didn't say clan memorabilia. I got tons of stuff. So since 1990, which is longer than I've been alive, you've been trying to infiltrate the clan. But what okay. does that do for people? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what it does, okay? The state of Maryland had a large clan organization. Mm -hmm. When the imperial wizard, which means the national leader, mm -hmm. when he turned in his robe to me, the Maryland Ku Klux Klan fell apart. Today, there is no more Ku Klux Klan. I beg to differ. Let me finish. Today, there is, well, you can't because I, I got the facts, okay? Mm -hmm. Today, there is no more Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Infiltrating the Klan ain't freeing your people. I disagree with you. I, I, I don't see how. What about uh, Timothy McVeigh? I don't He's in jail. Oh, he is? Well, he wasn't he killed? Something like that. So what? Well, obviously, you're very uneducated about it. Well, I mean, what, and you uneducated about the reality of the, most of the people that look like you. Every day on the hour, young black men and women are being snatched and kidnapped off the streets. They're ruining people's lives, right? Not rehabilitating them and sending them right back in the same neighborhoods that are already screwed up anyway. So when you say, oh, well, we need to be worried about something, about somebody blowing something up. No, somebody's getting locked up right now that's 16 years old that's never may see the light of day again just because they look like my skin or, or Kwame's skin or your skin, for that matter. So, did, I'm we talking about the energy that you're putting into all them years. That's a whole lot of years to be doing that, to be studying. It's not like a fetish. Be friending a white person who don't have to go through the same struggles as you, me, the son of the barbershop or that father. That's not an accomplishment. That's a new friend. That's somebody you can call. And this is coming from a dropout. You don't tell Steve Jobs he ain't successful. He ain't have no college degree. Bill Gates ain't got no college degree. But listen, but what I got, what I, the way I'm like disrespectful now. The way you can be in the streets building with people, right? So stop wasting your time going into people's houses that don't love you, a house where they want to throw you under the basement. So you believe that nobody can change? No, you, I believe you believe the wrong people can change. What do you mean the wrong people can change? White supremacists can't change. You don't believe they can change. No, white supremacists can't change. But I can change your mind because you look like me. You ain't doing nothing but collecting something that's going to build your own credibility. You're nothing but a pimp in a pulpit. And you're nothing but ignorant. Hey, I'm Daryl Davis. Sorry, Daryl. I said I, I can't shake your hand right now. Okay, that's I fine. Just wanna, I just want to be... I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but... I just want to say a couple things to you about the interactions that I just saw. First of all, man, you you an old head like me. I remember the day when Martin Luther King was shot. I was six years old. And on that day, I realized I was black. Not my skin color, but I realized what it meant to be black. I realized that I could die because I got your skin color right here. That's insane that we live in this world, that we live in this country, where your skin color determines your longevity. For you to come to Baltimore and disrespect some of the people who are on the front line here in Baltimore in the way that you did is reprehensible. Just like the young man said to you, you could have done a whole lot more work in the black community from the 90s to now to move our people forward rather than coming in here trying to uplift somebody that you got a hood off of their head. They still wear those hoods. And while you were saying the KKK doesn't exist, I looked up the KKK in Maryland, and there's a Klan group in Maryland right now still very active. You look it up yourself. So I'm saying you talking, you you calling somebody ignorant. You might want to check your own ignorance around this before you start calling my young men in Baltimore who are out here putting their lives on the line. Kwame marches hard with me in Baltimore. Kwame gets arrested in Baltimore. Where were you when the marches were going on? You were sitting with your clan people and disrespecting my people. If you can't respect black people and respect my people for doing the work that they're doing, take your ass and you hang out with them. Freddie Gray is dead. Tyrone West is dead. Anthony Anderson is dead. All that shit you talking about, these, these KKK hoods, who gives a shit? I don't give a shit about you or your KKK hoods. Don't come to Baltimore doing this shit again. Oh, 
Don't come back I, here. I, I can't talk now? You can talk, but don't talk that shit to me. Sit down and be quiet and let me talk to you. Get the fuck out of my face. Let me tell you how you are. You're going to show your own ignorance, man. No, don't disrespect black people. Man, you got some black in you, but you sound like you should have a little problem. And you walk away. But don't call me ignorant. Don't call me ignorant. Don't come here calling my people that. I just did. So that was a pretty, pretty emotional clip. Um, I wanted to show it, and hopefully you don't mind me showing uh, so much of it, but uh, I do think it was a good sort of entree into um, a conversation that uh, many of us are coming into as outsiders, right? So hopefully just the chance to be immersed in it and see some of the real tensions that are taking place in the midst of it uh, was helpful. And I actually, you know, I really respect Daryl Davis for including that clip in his documentary because in many ways, he does some things in that conversation that aren't that flattering, right? I mean, just some of the insults or the times he lost his cool. If I was making a documentary about my life, I'd make sure those parts were cut out, right? Um, but yeah, so there's, there's a lot to talk here. Um, what I want to say this, uh, this exchange kind of represents is what uh, James Cone in this book calls uh, the two great resistance traditions in African-American history. The two great resistance traditions in African-American history that are oftentimes uh, just at odds with one another. And they, they sort of have confronted each other throughout at least the last 50, 60 years since the civil rights movements. Um, and they're separated, according to Cone, by two really basic things. The first is that they have uh, different goals. Right? They have different goals. One aims toward integration, while the other aims toward separation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, again, according to Cone, integration is the idea that if whites believe, can you all read that? It's super small. I know. Sorry. Let me just read it for you out loud. Uh, it's the belief that if whites believe their political and religious documents, they know that black people should not be segregated. So then integrationists seek to show the contradictions between the professed values of whites and their actual treatments of blacks, right? And the best example, the best early example of this, and Cohn mentions too, is uh, Frederick Douglass, right? Who said, we the people, not we the white people. And if Negroes are people, they should be included in the benefits for which the Constitution of America was ordained and established. Separation, by contrast, is the belief that blacks should separate from America either by returning to Africa or going to some place where they can create socio-political structures derived from their own history and cultures. One of the best early examples of that in this country was a man named Marcus Garvey. Do you all know who Marcus Garvey was? The Back to Africa movement. And then Garvey said, our success educationally, industrially, and politically is based upon the protection of a nation founded by ourselves. So the two traditions that have a different goal, they also have a different method, right? On the one hand, uh, the first tradition, uh, its method is nonviolence, whereas the second tradition uses the method of black power. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, again, nonviolence, according to Cohn, is the personal practice of being harmless to self and others in every circumstance and under every condition. It's not passivity, which is the choice to do nothing, but it is the choice to pursue peace positively, right? And, you know, um, I use as kind of a good example of this, uh, not to like pull, I guess, the Jesus card, but uh, Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the use of uh, this, you know, scripture in, is intentional because in many ways, um, this divide between the two great traditions is exactly that. It's a religious divide, too. Those committed to nonviolence were also um, found within uh, Christian circles, whereas those committed to black power, it wasn't quite that clean. Uh, in fact, actually, the, the first man to coin the use of black power was a Christian, a man named Adam Clayton Powell, who was the pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, uh, just north of here. But uh, for the most part, uh, especially through its popularization through SNCC and uh, Snokely Carmichael, um, sort of after uh, some of the riots at Watt Street, et cetera, uh, black power was sort of a more secular um, a movement at the time. Now, I think that's one of the things that Cohn's trying to trouble. But um, according to Cohn, black power, by contrast, is the power of the black man to say, yes, to his own black being. 
It is black man's attempt to affirm his being, his attempt to be recognized as a thou in spite of the other, the white power which dehumanizes him. And so its central aim is to affirm the very characteristic which the oppressor ridicules, namely blackness, and to do so by any means necessary, so even violent means. And um, as you might guess, the sort of two sort of um, great figures in our country that mark these two great resistance uh, traditions are on the one hand, Martin, and on the other hand, Malcolm. And so I've got another kind of lengthy video clip. Hopefully you'll um, be able to sit through this, but it's just good to, I think, hear from their own mouths uh, how Martin and Malcolm articulated these two resistance traditions. We still feel that we are right and that we stand uh, within our constitutional rights uh, in the protest. And we still advocate nonviolence, passive resistance, and still uh, determined to use the weapon of love. And I can say that there is no bitterness on my part as a result of the decision, and I'm sure that I voice the sentiment of the more than 40,000 Negro citizens of Montgomery. We still have the attitude of love, we still have the uh, method of passive resistance, and we are still insisting emphatically that violence is self-defeating, that he who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. It has been suggested also that this movement uh, preaches a gospel of violence. No, the black people in this country have been the victims of violence at the hands of the white man for 400 years. And following the ignorant uh, Negro preachers, we have thought that it was godlike to turn the other cheek to the brute that was brutalizing us. And today, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is showing black people in this country that just as the white man and every other person on this earth has God-given rights, natural rights, civil rights, any kind of rights that you can think of when it comes to defending himself, black people should have, we should have the right to defend ourselves also. And because the Honorable Elijah Muhammad makes black people brave enough, men enough to defend ourselves no matter what the odds are, the white man runs around here with the, with the doctrine that we, uh, Mr. Muhammad is advocating uh, 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 violence when he's actually telling Negroes to defend themselves against violent people. Reverend Martin Luther King preaches a doctrine of non-violent insistence upon the rights of the American Negro. What is your attitude toward the, this the, philosophy? The white man pays Reverend Martin Luther King, subsidizes Reverend Martin Luther King, so that Reverend Martin Luther King can continue to teach the Negroes to be defenseless. That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's this American white man. And they have proved it throughout the country by the police dogs and the police clubs. A uh, hundred years ago, they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today, they have taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms. They've uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy or pray for those who use them despitefully. Today, uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attack that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in the, in the face of the attack of the Klan in that day. Malcolm X, one of the most articulate exponents of the black Muslim philosophy, has said of your movement and your philosophy that it uh, plays into the hands of the white oppressors, that uh, they are happy to hear you talk about love for the oppressor because this disarms the Negro and fits into the stereotype of the Negro as a meat, turning the other cheek sort of creature. Would you care to comment on Mr. X's belief? Well, I don't think of uh, love as, uh, in this context, as emotional bosh. I don't think of it as uh, a weak force. But I, I think of love as something strong and that organizes itself into powerful uh, direct action. Now, this is what I try to teach in the struggle in the South, that uh, we are not engaged uh, in a struggle that means we sit down and do nothing. Uh, that there's a great deal of difference between non-resistance to evil and non-violent resistance. Uh, non-resistance leaves you in uh, leaves you in a state of 
stagnant passivity and deadened complacency, wherein nonviolent resistance means that you do resist in a very strong and determined manner. And I think some of the uh, criticisms of uh, nonviolence, or some of the critics, fail to realize uh, that we are talking about something very strong, and they confuse non-resistance with non-violent resistance. He goes beyond that in some of the things I've heard him say, say that this is deliberately your philosophy of love of the oppressor, which he identifies completely with the non-violent movement, is, he says, is this philosophy and this movement is actually, are actually encouraged by whites because it makes them comfortable. It makes them believe that the Negroes are meek, supine creatures. Well, I don't think that's true. If anyone has ever lived with a nonviolent movement in the South, from Montgomery on through the Freedom Rides and through the sit-in movement and the recent Birmingham movement and see the reactions of many of the uh, extremists and reactionaries in the white community, uh, he wouldn't say that this movement makes, uh, or this philosophy makes them comfortable. Uh, I think it arouses uh, a sense of shame within them often in many instances. I think it uh, does something to cut, touch the conscience and uh, establish a sense of guilt. Now, so often people respond to guilt by engaging more in the guilt-evoking act in an attempt to drown the sense of guilt. But this, uh, this approach certainly uh, doesn't make the white man feel comfortable. I think it does the other thing. It disturbs this uh, conscience and uh, it, it disturbs this, this sense of contentment that he's had. What are the goals of the movement which you represent so effectively? Just as you said in the same article, uh, see, we're trying, Mr. Muhammad is trying to get us on God's side so God will be on our mm -hmm. side and help us to fight our battles against a very vicious, deceitful, uh, hi hypocritical enemy. And this is why uh, Mr. Muhammad uh, put so much stress upon moral reformation, that when Negroes stop getting drunk, when Negroes stop fornicating and committing adultery, when Negroes stop being addicted to drugs and these things that destroy the moral fiber and the morale of the Negro, then our people will be able to get together and unite in harmony and unity and get our own problems solved. Toward what end would you want our people united? What would you Toward see? being on God's side. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that God now is about to establish a kingdom on this earth based upon brotherhood and peace. And the white man is against brotherhood and the white man is against peace. His history on this earth has proved that. Nowhere in history has he been brotherly toward anyone. The only time he's brotherly towards you is when he can use you, when he can exploit you, when he can oppress you, when you will submit to him. And since his own history makes him uh, unqualified to be an, an inhabitant or a citizen, citizen in a kingdom of brotherhood, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that God is about to eliminate that particular race from this earth. So since they are due for elimination, we don't want to be with them. We're not trying to integrate with that which we know has come to the end of its rope. We're trying to, trying to separate from it and get with something that's more lasting, and we think that God is more lasting than the white man. I will never change uh, in my basic idea that nonviolence is the most potent weapon available to the Negro in his struggle for freedom and justice. I think for the Negro to turn to violence would be both impractical and immoral. Okay, so again, that was lengthy, but hopefully it sets the table for what we want to say uh, for the rest of the talk uh, well. So two major points kind of indicated by the title. The first is that justice is good. That justice is good. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, first, um, actually, I just did I just use the first person plural the way that uh, Nick Lannon and Aaron Zimmerman deplored earlier? What do I mean by that, right? Um, so, uh, what, do, what do I mean by that? Well, first, um, just to reiterate, Mar this is what Martin believed about integration early in his um, time and his work in the civil rights movement. This is straight from the I Have a Dream speech. He says, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, all men are created equal. 
I have a dream that one day sons of flamer, uh, former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. That little black boys and little black girls will be able to abide and join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Right? This is the vision that uh, King would call the beloved community, right? that there weren't separate races, but we all understood that we were one race, the human race, integrately interwoven and connected. Right? And so uh, Martin's method for that was nonviolence. Right? This is one of the last speeches he gave. It's something he believed in to the end of his life. Uh, this is from Where Do We Go From Here? The ultimate weakness of violence is that it's a descending spiral, beginning the ver- begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Well, against this, Malcolm would say two things. We declare our right on this earth to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given to the rights of a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. And he would say further that it is criminal to teach a man not to defend himself when he is the constant victim of brutal attacks. The only people in this country who are asked to be nonviolent are black people, right? And here he has kind of a point. In fact, he makes, uh, he makes this point in another place when he says, uh, just try to imagine um, a nonviolent Paul Revere, right? Give me liberty and give me death, right? We honor that statement, right? And this is sort of all that uh, Malcolm X is saying here too, give me liberty or give me death. And so Malcolm ends up promoting what he calls separation, right? The only permanent solution is complete separation of some land of our own in a country of our own All other courses will lead to violence and bloodshed. It will lead to the destruction of America and will also lead to the destruction of our people um, who fall for it. Okay, so again, these are two great uh, resistance traditions that take place within uh, the black community in America over the last uh, several uh, decades and even uh, reaching back further. But what's really interesting, and I think what's really interesting, this is kind of the uh, major theses of Cohn's book, is that you know, at this time, because of these divergent views, Malcolm and Martin were viewed as polar opposites, right? Completely opposite figures. But toward the end of their lives, they both start moving closer and closer to one another. Uh, and we could talk about uh, how Malcolm X moved closer to Martin. That's not really um, what I um, want to deal with today. But uh, what I think is really interesting and of actually great theological import is how Martin, late in his life, um, people often use the word radicalized, right? But how, at the very least, you can see Martin moving closer and closer to Malcolm. Let me give you two examples. First, Martin reconsiders the idea of separation. And you saw a little bit of that um, in what Kwame Rose uh, said before. But Martin says, we have fought hard and long for integration, as I believe we should have. But I've come to believe that we are integrating into a burning house. I'm afraid that even as we integrate, we're walking into a place that does not understand that this nation needs to be deeply concerned with the plight of the poor and the disenfranchised. Until we commit ourselves to ensuring that the underclass is given justice and opportunity, we will continue to perpetuate the anger and violence that tears the soul of this nation. In fact, uh, after this speech, Martin even goes on to say that he, to, to at least suggest that he thinks it might be immediate good there might be some good in the races living separately for a while until they work out some of these differences and can kind of start seeing each other more eye to eye. Uh, Martin then goes on to also reconsider the idea of black power to an extent, right? So he says, I contend that the cry of black power is at bottom a reaction to the reluctance of white people to make a kind of changes necessary to make justice a reality for the Negro. I think that we've got to see that the riot is the language of the unheard and what it is, is that America, what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened. This is during the civil rights movement, has worsened over the last few years. Right? So he's not necessarily promoting the idea of black power here. He never does, but he says it makes sense. There's a reason for this. Right? And so what was his reason? Well, here's what I want to say changed uh, for Martin. Uh, it really took place for him when he left the South, which is the primary location of his um, you know, civil rights movement during the early part of his work, 
and started to go into the North. And after the Watts riots in LA, and then his own Chicago campaign in Chicago, um, Martin actually has a profound theological shift in the way that he thinks about humanity, right? We use the language of low anthropology for this, right? But Martin, when he was working in the South, he had always assumed, in part because of his education in seminary at Crozer, uh, that humans were basically good, and that there were just a few bad apples ruining the whole thing for everybody. And after he goes into the North, and he sees the way that white power, right, white supremacy is working on systemic levels in the North, he changes his mind. And he starts to realize that this sin, the sin nature of human beings is much much worse than he had originally anticipated. In fact, he goes on to ex, uh, explain this in a uh, set of lectures he calls the weaknesses in liberal theology. Now, he's using liberal a little bit differently than we would today, but there are three basic points. Well, actually four, but I'm leaving one out here. Uh, the fourth one is that uh, he believed they had an insufficient doctrine of Scripture, uh, that they kind of just like to chop up the Bible and use it for like critical ends and not actually put it into practice ever, right? Uh, but for Martin, again, in these uh, lectures, he said, First, one of the big weaknesses of liberal theology is that it talked about love in an esoteric or theoretical sense rather than in a practical sense. It was sort of vague and abstract and never actually touched the ground, right? And so because of that, it was disconnected from the suffering of real people, right? It was sort of a vague, abstract feeling and didn't matter to the lives of those who were suffering, right? And so because of that, liberals, they sort of had their eyes in the sky, right, he says, uh, so that uh, they don't actually see the sinful condition that human beings live in. The most poignant image that he uses for this is the wolf and the fox. Did you all catch that when uh, Kwame Rose uses it in the um, accidental courtesy video? It's actually a phrase that comes from Malcolm first, and this is how Malcolm introduces it in his uh, autobiography. Malcolm says this, uh, conservatism in America, American politics means let's keep the in their place, and liberalism means let's keep the Negroes in their place. But tell them we'll treat them a little better. Let's fool them more with more promises. With these choices, I felt that the American black man only needed to choose which one to be eaten by, the liberal fox or the conservative wolf, because both of them would eat him. It was for the black man only a question of Johnson the fox and Goldwater the wolf. And black people always have advanced further. This is what's behind Kwame Rose's statement about wanting Trump to be president, right? Black people always have advanced further when they have seen who they have had to rise up against, that they've had to rise up against a system that they clearly saw outright was against them. Under the steady lullabies sung by foxy liberals, the Northern Negro became a beggar. Martin King doesn't say exactly this, but he does say this about Nixon and Kennedy. Basically, at the bottom level, he says, I did not see any difference between them. Is there being any difference between Kennedy and Nixon? And he goes on to say this. Over the last few years, many Negroes have felt that their most troublesome adversary was not the obvious bigot of the KKK or the John Birch Society, but the white liberal who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers tranquility to equality, the white liberal must see that the Negro needs not only love, love in that esoteric sense, but justice. It is not enough to say we love Negroes. We have many Negro friends. Right? We, have many, we have many black friends, right? They must demand justice for Negroes. Love that does not satisfy justice is no love at all. It is merely a sentimental affection, little more than what one would have for a pet. Love at its best is justice concretized. Love is unconditional. It is not conditional upon one staying in place or watering down his demands in order to be considered respectable. The white liberal must escalate his support for racial justice rather than de-escalate it. The need for commitment is greater today than ever. And so he keeps using this, this phrase, trying to refocus or re, redefine, to translate the idea of love that was so popular, maybe even in his early usage. And what I want to suggest when he says a phrase like, love uh, without justice, right? That we can hear, maybe to put it more in mockingbird terms, um, love without the law, right? In fact, even this idea of power, you know, this early connection, do y'all remember what the first command was in scripture? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Because uh, if you do in that day, you shall be like gods, right? That was the temptation, right? And I, so I, what I want to suggest is in this moment, where Martin starts to retool his thinking, 
right, from the way he had kind of come at his civil rights activism early in his life, that he's starting to believe that the word of the law has not yet fully spoken uh, true, right? Has not really had its day, has not really sort of leveled uh, the sin condition that's in uh, the world in that time, which Martin saw alongside Malcolm as a kind of white supremacy, as a kind of white power. And so uh, to sort of translate that a little bit, Martin is thinking in terms of black power as a kind of law. That quote where he's sort of reconsidering black power, he's thinking of black power as law, and therefore, following Paul, holy, righteous, and good, right? That in that day, in the civil, civil rights movement, and maybe in, in, in some ways, still in our day, that the law still needs to have its say. It's holy, righteous, and good. That since the law is holy and the, and the commandment, here I want to translate black power as holy, righteous, and good, the law still needs to have its say, right? Justice, justice is good. But finally, grace is better. And what do I mean by that? Well, this again comes from Cone, and you kind of heard in that very last uh, clip from Martin King that at the end of the day, there was something irreconcilable about Martin and Malcolm, right? Uh, Cone puts it this way, it is not likely that Malcolm and Martin could have made a genuine coalition because of commitments derived from their faiths. And again, for Martin, that commitment was to nonviolence, whereas Malcolm, that commitment was to black power. And, you know... I think most people know this, but it's amazing if you really read through the uh, sort of journals and the writings of Martin King, just how deeply at every step in the civil rights movement, he derived each move, each decision from a life of prayer and faith and dependence upon God. This is one of my favorite examples from his uh, journals right after the first attempt on his life. And he, he writes this. He says, it seems as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, Stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you, even to the end of the world. And I tell you, I've seen the lightning flash, I've heard the thunder roar, I've felt the sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul, but I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me alone, and almost at once my fears began to go, my uncertainty disappeared. And I was ready to face anything. So again, what's happening here from, from Martin, what I want to suggest is two things. And these are uh, two thoughts that sort of um, mature throughout his life. Again, first of all, he has this developing sense of low anthropology that focuses on the idea of sin as power. Right? The idea of sin as power. The temptation that the serpent gives to Eve in the garden, that ye shall be like God's. Ye shall be like God. And that, that, for Martin, is at the heart of sin. It's similar to actually what I think uh, Paul's trying to get out now. Paul's all in his uh, Panopticon book, right? When he talks about death being that one last sin that we can't seem to excise ourselves from, or sorry, power being the one uh, last sin of our lives that even death doesn't seem to be able to excise from our lives, right? So for Martin, uh, sin ultimately is focused on the idea of power. When you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This really comes out then in an, uh, a speech he gives called Beyond Vietnam, and then again in the, the speech he gives called the, uh, the Three Evils of Society. And um, something, you know, I, I mentioned before how everybody hated Martin by the end of his life. It was in part because he sort of stopped focusing so much on the issue of race and um, went on campaigns uh, first against. Um, the Vietnam War, right? And then secondly, against poverty, right? And for Martin, what racism was still a huge deal. It was only one of three great evils in society alongside capitalism or consumerism uh, and militarism. And when he went for, the, for those things alongside of his uh, attempts to end racism, he lost everybody, right? Blacks in his community said, hey man, what about our fight? Are you leaving us here to focus on these issues of poverty uh, and, and the military, and um, you know, white liberals who had been supportive of him to that point said, this is unpatriotic, we can't support this, we can't go this far with you to stand against Vietnam. But for Martin, because sin was ultimately focused on this idea of power, he couldn't be against racism and not also be against these things as well, to not ultimately stand against these things, which were all different ways in which power was being exercised in order to keep some down and some at the top, right? 
So for Martin, the problem is a low anthropology, and in the end, his only solution, and this is why uh, he can never go all the way with Malcolm, uh, he, he remains committed to nonviolence, because when the problem is a low anthropology, as we say here, the only solution is a high Christology, right? And so I want to suggest then that we can look at King as if he was a theologian of the cross, right? Here's, again, from his journals, he writes this. We must not return violence under any condition. This is the way of Christ. It is the way of the cross. We must somehow believe that unearned suffering is redemptive. The believer in nonviolence lives by the conviction that through this suffering and cross-bearing, the social situation may be redeemed. That unearned suffering is redemptive, and by suffering and cross-bearing, the social situation can be redeemed. That makes no sense. Right? There's no logic by which you can claim that unearned suffering is redemptive. This is, for Martin, purely an act of faith based on Scripture, based on the gospel. Right? It's a metaphysical claim that somehow through unearned suffering, the world will actually be changed. Right? Uh, I want to liken it to this doctrine, right? that of imputation. Right? For Martin, in one sense, Nonviolence is a kind of legal fiction where you decide to call your enemy. You decide to call your enemy through a fictitious act, your friend. Despite who they are, despite everything they've done, you to call your enemy a friend, imputing that to them, uh, and belief that somehow that act is actually what changes the world. That through that kind of love, the suffering, um, redemptive love is generative. Is creative. It reminds me of this, and this is what I'll close with, this quote by uh, the great Paul F.M. Zolv. It's ultimately judgment that kills love, the love that births goodness. Thanks.